Peace, peace, and welcome to another discussion on Cook on Monday Morning at Cook on Monday Morning. We are building lives and make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. So I don't actually have uh, any brothers, but if I had a brother, an older brother that I loved and couldn't stand, uh, this man would be him. <laughs> My first cousin, Marquise Cook, uh, taught me a lot. Is continues to be one of the closest people to me in my life. He's led a really interesting life. And um, he has a ton of stories to tell, some that he may not be able to speak about publicly. <laughs> but great insight nonetheless on being a parent, on relationships, on what's going on in the Black community, on politics, on family. He is, I would say, the glue of the Cook family uh, for my generation. It's an honor to know him. It's an honor to be related to him. Brother Marquise Cook, how you doing, sir? Mr. Cook, how you doing? <laughs> you look beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about 2020. Let's start there. Let's start, let's start with 2020. And what's that been like for you? 2020 has been... The interesting year for the for the whole world, you know. Uh, my year hasn't stopped much or changed much, you know. I'm essential, so I've been pretty much active throughout the whole uh, pandemic, you know. So it has affected me as it's because it affected the whole world. But um, my life pretty much is uh, been just moving along. You know, taking it day by day. What did you think about what happened with the presidential election? Did you expect it to go the way it went? I mean, honestly, I was watching Doomsday Prepper. I was just preparing for the worst <laughs> and hoping for the best. And I was like, they get to tripping too hard about this stupid election. Don't run up on me. So, <laughs> you know, I was, I, was, I was waiting for the breakdown of society. <laughs> All the way up into, uh, you know, what was supposed to happen, what did happen, and what continues to happen. You know, in terms of, like, the the way things went with, this is the first time in my lifetime, I think in either of our lifetimes, where we didn't know the night of, where you just, like, whatever it's going to be, you just, you're just going to be ready to protect yourself? Is that, and you weren't as invested in the outcome? Were you watching it closely? Like, what were you doing? I was waiting. I was definitely waiting, um, but as we see in this year, it wasn't no use in, you know, rushing the outcome. I was just waiting for it. It wasn't going to come no sooner than it was going to come. Um, I like to pray a lot. I don't know what everybody else do while they waiting. I was just praying, not necessarily for an outcome, but for the best outcome in that, you know, everybody be safe and everybody be protected. I mean, the trickle-down effect of how much it actually affects us, who's president, um, has elevated through history. I mean, maybe it's as you get older, it affects you more, <laughs> but uh, you start to directly see the effects of who's in office and those mm-hmm. policies and politics. That- yeah, I think I think that's true. It- 
it uh, affects you more as you get older or maybe as your income changes. I think like the taxes is like what you probably see most notably unless being from San Francisco, being in neighborhoods that relied on social services, a lot of the federally funded programs were kind of present in the neighborhoods that we grew up in. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the Fillmore, you know, because we both grew up here and the way I grew up in the Fillmore is not the same way you grew up <laughs> in the Fillmore. Like, yeah. um, you know, grandma raised me and my sister from the age of 10. And um, I had that like structured, very much church life. And you sort of got a different experience. Um, talk a little bit about your upbringing. I mean, I had a structured church life too. You know, the first part of my life, I went to private school. I was in church every day with uh, grandma, you know, had us from church to church. I think I was in church more than any of y'all was in church. because mm-hmm. I was doing the uh, speeches and singing and, you know, I was headlining. I'd be pop up out of church and see my name on the program. Be like, Grandma, what my name doing on the program? Oh, you on the program, you know. So we used to really run around church to church, and you know, I had an um, amazing memory. I think by the time I was somewhere between five and eight, I ain't gonna say the exact uh, age. I had memorized the whole. I have a dream speech and. I would go like, oh, the kids at the churches used to be so mad because my speeches used to be so long, you know. Mm-hmm. The older people loved it. They would invite me all over the place. But mm-hmm. like at my church, after I grew up, I talked to uh, the kids that were my age at my church. Like, we used to hate when you used to get up there and say them long old speeches and we go home and they'd be like, why you can't say them long speeches like Marquis? Everybody got their little big speech on a piece of paper, read it and they parents, I'm getting up there reciting the crucifixion. And that's like, <laughs> I don't know how many pages long and I'm, you know, grandma had me with my theatrical, you know, in the plays and um, at the opera house. So, mm-hmm. You say we were raised differently, but we were raised similarly. And I often say I was raised right in the wrong place, you know, because when I was younger and we moved down to um, the Flav, I still, I moved from my grandmother's house in with my mom and we moved down into like the heart of Filmo. I still would be dressed up going, walking to church from my house there. And the, the gangsters on the Ave would laugh so hard it would be uncontrollable. Like, where is you going? And I used to be looking like, go to church. That's where y'all need to be. <laughs> but you know, I try to tell these kids today, like, growing up in the crack epidemic is like such a big uh, peril. It's one of those great um things like the civil rights movement, like slavery, like the crack epidemic. You know what I mean? And growing up in that era definitely took a toll on the Black community and everyone who was subjected to it in one way or another. Yeah, I want to I tease out a little bit more of like um, what it was like, because as you say that, yeah, that was a mischaracterization the way I framed that. Um, and I think what happened, if if something did happen, it was kind of like we switched. Like I was with my parents up until I was 10 and then I was with grandma. And then it sounds like you were with grandma 
up until I was about um, to. <laughs> and then you went with your mom, and, mom yeah, uh, we, and, and, and Uncle Michael. And so yeah. the, but she does tell a lot of stories. Our grandma does tell a lot of stories about uh, you with her at church. And, um, and you definitely set the standard for everybody else also about like being active because we, uh, you know, I was always really shy with the stage. I, I never really liked the stage. So, and I want to talk a little about the black church because, you know, as I'm leaving, as I'm leaving the, the school board, there has been like these, you know, elder women, black women that come from that Baptist tradition that have been doing these like small online events for me to, to appreciate me and for, you know, to kind of like love on me as, 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 they, as they say. And the church was really, cause we talked about the crack ep- epidemic, right? That we should go into that some more. But then the church was like really the place for me where I got to be celebrated. You know, it was like, I, like grandma, I hated being on program, but like <laughs> grandma put us on program. People clap for us. We had to like prepare. And no matter how bad you did, you was going to get love at some level. You was going to be told that like, you know, we value you here. So as I bring I that, that up. I think you developed into an eloquent, eloquent speaker from where you began, you know, and it was largely due to maybe bombing when you was younger and seeing what that felt like, you know what I mean, to know that you need to be prepared and be aware because you can memorize the whole thing, get up there on the microphone and forget everything. And just like that, you know what I mean? It, it ain't about the memory, it's about the delivery too. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got to be able to spit that thing out it, with, his, with the pressures on, with everybody staring at you, you know? Ain't about mm-hmm. doing it in the mirror. It's about delivering that speech on the mic. Yeah, and I definitely I, I share that story about me um, being on stage and and uh, bombing my "I Have a Dream" speech when I was eight. Yeah, I never did that. Yeah, and I told it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and I told a story about um, I was at a church recently. It was a mostly white church, and I told a story about you and grandma. Uh, in the car and it was a Christmas event. We're approaching Christmas. So this sounds like the right time to tell the story. And you were like, she said, you used to sit on the middle console. I did. <laughs> in the seat, in the car, in the front. Yeah. And um, at the church event, there was a black Santa. And you said to grandma, uh, grandma, that Santa was black. And she said, yeah, that's right. And then you said, oh, whoa. When's the real Santa coming? <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I was, I was, t- I was talking to a white audience, and I and I mentioned that because um, I was talking about like race and mm-hmm. legitimacy and uh, cultural narrative and like all this other stuff. And now I'm talking about the black church, right? Because you're talking about eloquent speaking. Like, is there anything else that comes to mind that you thought it did to benefit the community? There's definitely a sense of family in the black church. And uh, when I was younger, uh, uh, I feel like the church had a lot of opportunities for the community to, you know, I played on basketball teams for the church. I met a lot of people, you know, we had lock-ins. It would be like 10, 15 churches from all over the Bay Area. Um, 
you know, I, I feel like the church has a, a responsibility and they have, a, you know, to support the community and to provide an alternative to uh, what's going on negatively in the community. You know, I mean, they're supposed to be there to meet the needs of the people and 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 in true fashion uh you know serve as jesus did and so you 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 said you grew up in the right with the right home in the wrong place is that how you phrase it Uh, i said i I was raised right in the wrong place okay so let's talk about the other part of that what so you talked about the gangsters on the corner laughing at you um you know talk a little bit about just that experience and the community, the types of people in the community, what some of your earlier experiences were engaging in the community? Uh, <laughs> like, like, who were your first friends? Who were the first people that you were like, friends my from friends the neighborhood? at church was my first friend. Friends from the neighborhood. Huh? Friends from the neighborhood. You said in the neighborhood? Right. Oh, from I'm, the neighborhood? Actually, like, my first friends I met at a church event, you know, uh, it was at the lock-in, but or at school, you know, you go to school in the neighborhood, you get to know people that live around around there, you know, so. Um, and with grandma, she's so well connected, you know, a whole bunch of people just through her because she's friends with their parents or grandparents and you, you know, I mean, you just be a part of the community, you know, mm-hmm. travel, you go places. Um, like I said, school is where you find your first friends. If you really heavy in the church, you find your first friends at church. Uh, and in the neighborhood, I think it was a family that lived down the street, and I just used to be at their house all the time. You know, it was a bunch of kids over there. <laughs> I remember uh, I used to be at their house all the time. It was four of them in one bedroom. And, you know, I was the only child until I was, like, 12, 13. So I had a huge Victorian room all to myself with a drum set in there and bunk beds. And it was just me, and, you know, and I would spend all my time down at these people's house. And they got three, four people per room living. But, you know, it was more active down there than at my house. Where where did you where let's list the public schools that you went where where did you go to school? You talked about private school first. What was your K through twelve experience? I went to uh St. Paulus first. I went to Everett, Gal, I went to Wash, I went to City College, I went to Kennesaw State. Oh, I went to SR Martin. That was like one of the first uh charter schools. Yeah, let's 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 talk a little bit about high school. And then I want to talk about rap. So um, first, well, I should ask, when did you start rapping? Middle school at Everett. It was like, probably like 12. I mean, what was, was there like an initial experience or artist or conversation that sparked your interest and made you want to pursue that? Uh, I think it was Slick Rick, A Children's Story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first song I memorized the whole song. And I remember one of my cousins, she was singing along and I had never seen nobody sing along to a rap song. Like I used to listen to the Fat Boys and Run DMC and the Beastie Boys before that on my radio, Houdini. It was only about five, six rappers back then. 
<laughs> you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. 10 jillion rappers back then. It was just a handful. So everybody listened to the same rappers, but when Secret came with that children's story and I saw my cousin memorizing it and repeating it to me, and I did the same, you know, coming from reciting all them uh, long, drawn-out speeches. This was something fun to recite, you know? So mm-hmm. I started writing my own. When I first started writing raps in middle school, people didn't believe I was writing them, you know? You didn't mm-hmm. write that. You didn't write that. I'd be like, yeah, I wrote that myself. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And I remember uh, San Quinn went to the school across the street from Everett, and we would go over there, and he was rapping way back then, too. We used to go over there and mess up the Pledge of Allegiance while they was doing the Pledge of Allegiance and get him in trouble because we went to the public school across the street. He used to hate it, but we we do it there every morning. Yeah, yeah. San Quinn is um, another Bay Area rapper. For people that don't uh, know, we'll flash a picture of his, of his face. Talk about the Fillmore rap scene, the San Francisco rap scene. Because you mentioned San Quinn. What was going on with the two of you around that time? Was it mostly just people at school? Was there anybody prominent from the area? Uh, back then, there was only like uh, Huey MC and uh, Rapid Fote. The GLP came like a little bit after that, but okay. there was some other, mostly all of them fell under GLP somehow, some way, but... Um, those were the initial pioneers for, I know, you know, shooting videos and making albums and pushing stuff out the trunk. I mean, they really set a, a, a precedent for uh, the independent hustle. How does it progress? So you, you start sort of doing like writing stuff, reciting it with friends. How old were you when you first going to record anything? What was the first recording experience? I think I had to be maybe like 13, 14. And my, uh, I had a friend, Jay Lee. He had a karaoke machine and he would do what was called looping beats. And he would take maybe five seconds of a song instrumental and play it, record it, stop it, rewind it, play it, record it, stop it, rewind it, play it until we had a five minute long instrumental. And we would put that tape <laughs> in the instrumental in one side and we would record with the microphone on the karaoke machine on the other side. And I think uh, somebody was record reciting. I, we don't have any of that music that from back then, but somebody said one of them lines from one of them raps that we made, you know, they would go two turfs wide. <laughs> Only two turfs are here in the song, you know, but somebody recited one of them songs. They would go up the block, around the block, down the block, and, you know, people be like, let me get a dub of that tape. Let me get that song, you know. And uh, that was the first time I recorded and we used to make a whole bunch of songs in there, jacking everybody beats. Before Ice Cube was jacking for beats, we was looping people beats and <laughs> making songs. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, I didn't go to Great America, and they recorded a whole song in the, you know, they had a studio, the karaoke in Great America, and they was able to uh, record a whole song without me. I didn't make the trip, but that's pretty much how, how I started. 
Yeah, yeah. Now nah, people nah, didn't like nah. rappers back then. They like get your rapping ass out of here, man. <laughs> you know, everybody was gangsters. Nobody was rappers. They, everybody wasn't no rappers. People. Right. I want. I want to. I want to get into more of the progression, but you know, you're having a good time uh, rapping. It seems like a natural direction from the church speeches. And people are prominent for the area. It starts to like, when does it start to like get hot? Like what happens? Is, is there a moment where you're in high school or before where you're like, yo, people are really getting on? I never thought of it uh, from a business aspect until I got older, you know, so mm-hmm. I got out of high school to uh, really tar- started taking it serious and, um, I don't think I was doing it because it was other people becoming successful from it. I think that's what I was always just doing. So it was just a natural progression from artists and just wanting to have more control over my career because I'm signed to this label or this person making my um, album. And we all just on the same level. You can't do much more for me, but put me on the back burner. So it just made me want to, take more control over my own career right, um, right, right. as I kept doing it, you know, cause people had my album sitting on the shelf. People were turning down deals for me, um, from like record labels that I didn't even know about because they was paying for my studio time. They was paying for my beats. So they, in fact, own my music, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I need to do that. As you're coming up through high school, like what is your association to school? How do you feel about school? Uh, school is stupid. Let's say more. <laughs> no, so uh, <laughs> I did forget one school that I went to it was a Pan African People's Organization, and it was kind of like a daycare, <laughs> but it was like a a woke daycare on steroids. So I went there until I was about six, and um. They was in there teaching me like everything, basically. So when I went to St. Paulus and I took the interest exam, I was supposed to be going to first grade. I got everything right on the interest in ground for first grade. So they gave me the second grade one. I got everything right on there. And they only went up to eighth grade. They gave me every grade and I got all the stuff right on all of the tests for every grade. So I'm six. I'm sitting there with my mom, who's probably like 24, 25, and she's, you know, living however she's living or whatever she's doing but you know i'm sitting there with her and the principal and they basically asked me what grade do i want to go to and i was kind of like i don't know i'm six you know (laughs) but you know i know all this stuff is easy that's what i do know and i you know i I don't know how my life would have been different if i would have been like well i I should just go to high school you know because i think about it now like i should have just went up the street to sacred heart and took the test up there and see, you know, I don't know how far I could have went because they was literally teaching me like geometry and trigonometry at six. You know what I mean? So in an effort to make a wise decision at six, I chose to go to the second grade instead of the first grade because I felt like when they showed me the fifth grade kids, like they took me to different classes. I'm like, them kids is huge. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be in class with them huge old kids. So mm-hmm. they showed me second grade. I was like, all right, I'll go to second grade. I went to second grade and naturally I was bored to death. And I would do stuff like throw pencils into the ceiling, 
I would turn in my homework writing as small as I possibly could. I would make fun of people in class. I spent majority of my time capping, doodling because I finished my work so quick. I was like, man, this is baby work. You know what I mean? And eventually I lost interest in schoolwork altogether. And I didn't try. You know, I graduated from high school with maybe like a 1.0 or something like that. I mean, I, I wasn't never in class. I wasn't never doing my work. I mean, in middle school, I was more interested in the social aspect of school than the academic aspect because every time I went to class, it was dumb. And every time I would test, I would test into um, like honors English, honors math. I would test into these classes and be sitting in these classes and they'd be looking at me like, why is he in this class? You know, little street kid, you don't know nothing. And I could do it, but I, I sold myself short because I missed a lot of fundamental stuff. And as you don't use stuff and you don't pay, like I lost a lot of that stuff. So I didn't, I didn't actually try until I got to the university. You know, I messed off school, middle school, high school, junior college. I just, you know, whatever, whatever to do to get by, da, 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 blah, 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 blah. I ain't really tripping off this stuff because, you know, I know I could do it. So when I got to college, I was like 30 something. I'm like, man, let me really try and see what I could really do. You know what I mean? Like, let me really try. And just like I thought, it was mad easy. You know, every, I think every semester that I didn't get a 4.0, I got like a 3.75. You know, I made, every semester I wasn't on the president's list, I was on the dean's list. And it wasn't like I was trying hella extra hard, but I did see where I missed a lot of fundamental stuff, you know, far as grammar and punctuation because I hadn't used it in so long and I needed a tutor for statistics. I used to be a math genius, but I've been messing around in school for 30 years. But like I said, I graduated magna cum laude though, and it was easy. And yeah, the teacher yeah, yeah. I was I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna get into that story like uh not getting your first 4.0 until college and how transformative, how watching your life as an observer, seeing the transformation that you've undergone. Cause I've, I've never gotten a 4.0. And, and so I remember when you were, we were on the phone and you called me, you was like, and I, and I, and I had finished school. I was out of college, right? Yeah. Um, when you went back full time or I want to get, or how, however you structured it, I want to get into that. Um, because I think, I think the real beauty of your story is the transformation and what i what i hope to kind of like get into is really what it was like and what what inspired the change right mm -hmm. because you've always been really connected to the family always showed up at everything always showed up for everybody and um you you had like a really stressful life to see you today and how much you have diving into like being more intellectually stimulated, um, you know, mental health and wellness, uh, like having a spiritual life, um, setting an example for, for your son, you know, it's just like, I just hope we don't miss it, this pivot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like, 
because because if I could say like you know you talked about being interested in the social aspect of high of school, um, getting a one in high school, and uh, and I feel like you're scratching the surface, you know, yeah. like what what was going on in high school in the film war? Like what were you seeing? What was life like? Without without getting nobody in trouble, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I know. I, I know how to speak English, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a gal, gal was probably the rubber school. It was like a fair east side. Lean on me up in there. Like every time I went to school down there, it was like I would get into a fight or get jumped or some turf was mad at me for something that I had done, and it was kind of like. You know, why I even go to school every time I come up here it is a problem because you got all the projects packed into one. And depending on who was beefing that week, it was, you know, it was real active. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of people weren't in class. I, I, I rarely was in class. Grandma came up there like every day. To, um, I still wasn't in class. So I just, you know, I just wasn't in class. I'd be up there. I usually leave around lunch because I'd be done had enough by by that time. But honestly, you know, you went to school back in the day. That's where all the girls was at. They wasn't in the projects hanging outside. Them ain't the ones you want. You want the ones at school. So that's where all the girls. <laughs> that's where all the girls was at. You know, they'd be outside for a little while, but you had to, you know, catch them walking to and from school. But school was the club. Before the club, you know, that's where everybody was at. Gangsters went to school, man. It was cracking in that thing, man. But it was always, you know, altercation and issues that spilled over from the streets, you know. A lot of people coming up there that don't even go there. And we used to go to other schools and get into altercations. And, uh, I mean, San Francisco in the 90s and the early 2000s, everywhere I go, because I – go to a lot of cities, a lot of places out the country, and they have this image of San Francisco like it ain't uh, official. <laughs> but when you grow up in San Francisco and learn that it's more than the Castro district, that it is inundated with projects throughout the city um, that were very active at the time, uh, a lot of people miss that because of the tourists, you know, the the the, the um, Pier 39 and Fisherman's Wharf cable car aspect of the city. That's what they promote, Golden Gate Bridge and all that. But um, the gang culture in San Francisco is very real. And you could, you know, tell by the murder rate. Yeah, you, you talked a little bit about like a bunch of different sets at the school at the same time. Uh, what were the different neighborhood sets and like, how would you describe what a set is from San Francisco? I mean, just different buildings, you know, had an OC projects, Paisley projects. Right. Got, this is all Fillmore. Yeah. Uh-huh. Got Harbor Road over in uh, Hunters Point, got West Point, you know, mm-hmm. Sunnydale, they got, got Brookdale, Blydale, Lakeview, they had the the Dolph, you had Lobos, you had, you know, it was just. These are predominantly black youth, right, from these neighborhoods. Right, right. You could drive all around the city and it would be packed 
you know, in every project, <laughs> Patrell Hill, you drive. Like, it would be so many people outside, you know, young black males just all over the city. And you don't see that anymore because due to gentrification or, or whatever or whatnot. But it used to be around the clock all night. At any given time, you could roll through any given set and it would be. Yeah, I had on um, a, a brother that's older than than us. And he grew up in Fillmore. He's like, uh, his name is Eric McDonald. And um, he grew up, yeah, he grew up in the Fillmore. And he said that um, I never had to order pay for review. I just had to open a window. Oh, like, yeah, I used to do that. When I was <laughs> on Flav, that was my first cable access. When I was about 10, at nighttime, I would turn off all the lights and I would look out the window just far enough to have my eyes over. And I used to watch all the big gang fights with happen right there people selling drugs police raids people getting shot this that and like you could literally just watch all night and it'd be like a tv program you know these occurrences with violence you know we talked about the fighting what were some of the i mean i'm sure and there was more shooting more people losing their lives like when did that really start to happen for you with your friend circle uh, Trey Below, I mean, he was like a, a, a martyr, I say. You know, he was the first person that everybody knew Trey Below. You know, uh, I he lived around the corner from me. I lived on Webster and Fulton. He lived on Grove and Webster. And I didn't have no big cousins or big brothers. So he used to really look out for me when I was younger. You know, um, popular charismatic dude he used to rap i mean you know he was a real cool dude go through eric set this that and the third um but uh, a few people got killed before that uh i remember uh cousin boo bam killed that got killed that was auntie maggie's son that changed me i was probably like somewhere between eight and ten when that happened um that was my first time seeing a young black male in a casket and uh i i said i'd never want to see a young, another young black male in a casket again that was my man's for real he used to come pick me up from grandma's take me up to the jets let me play his video game like he used to just be telling me other stuff looking out for me you know my big cousin he got killed he was only like 18 you know True. that was my first experience with him <laughs> And then the uh, Trey Below thing, that hit so close to home for everybody. But then after that, it was kind of like the floodgates. Everybody just started getting, like, that was just like a light switch turned on. Mm -hmm. It was gun, it was gun, <laughs> it was gun slinging after that. <laughs> mm -hmm. It just mattered when it was going to happen for you. Yeah, you, you, you sort of um, talked a lot about, you know, people passing on the Pills and Patron album um, with the song, How Did I Make It Through? Yeah, I named over 50 people that I grew up with that got killed um, on that song. And uh, like I said, when I went to Boo Funeral, I, I didn't go to nobody else's funeral after that. Um, so that was kind of like my respects paid to those because I was really close to a lot of those uh, people that had passed away, you know. With the Pills of Patron album, it was our first time working together and, and collaborating yeah. with uh, the film, The Adventures of Nippy Swagger is Real out here, R-E-E-L. We'll put a cover on the 
<laughs> it was called Bullies with Bullies Presents Swagger is Real Out Here. Yes. It's yes. Um, <laughs> how many how many albums did you record that you put out for sale? I put out three solo albums. I put out the movie and the soundtrack, and then I put out a project with me and Juice from Bullies with Bullies. Juice and Nip Swag put the money in the bag. Right, yeah. And I remember recording the music video for that, Put the Money in the Bag, the, the Dead President-inspired um, music video. They pulled so, that off the internet. They had like 30,000-something views when they pulled it off the internet because it had a sample in it. Uh-huh. Every time I try to post it, they pull it. I want to talk about my experience with that uh, project. And, you know, I want to have a discussion with you about it, you know, because like with with the movie that we did together, you were really the reason I got an opportunity to do anything with film. Right. And now, you know, I do I do work in politics and consulting and, you know, this podcast thing is kind of like the only video focused production I've really done on my own since that project I did with you when I was in college. And I was like somewhere between 20 and 22. And that was prompted by a, a class project that I did that we used like the Usher song. Um, and you saw that and he was like, yo, let's do some music videos. <laughs> yeah, and I had three albums at the time. So I didn't know what song to shoot a video for it. I got so many songs. I'm like, man, I should have been shooting videos. So that's how it turned into a movie. So I'm going to get as many videos as I can right now. Then, you know, and I think it was like five music videos. Like we got to find a way to tie these in. And, you know, I think Streets is Watching that came out like not too far before that. And that was kind of like where I got the idea to, you know, just string the videos together, the little skits and scenes in between. And I, I mean, we made something. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun making it. I will say that. Now, at the end of it, we only had like 30 minutes of usable footage of months of shooting. <laughs> but it was that you had to be there. That's one of the things. You can't really tell on screen all that went into making that movie well talk about it on, uh, from let's talk about how it started from your end so do you remember the initial conversations about doing it like what what was happening for you how old were you what was going on in your life this is before damani right no no he okay. was born in damani, 2004. Your son, damani. he was born in 2004 um okay. we made that in 2006 2006, we started. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We did that like summer of 2006. I think it uh, it released in like 2007, like beginning of 2007. So uh, how old are you at the time? I distinctly remember I was 29. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was in my early 20s. You were in your later side of your 20s. Yeah. You got your first, your, you know, your son is born. And um, what else is happening? Oh, I'm hot. It's habanero. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I literally got shot right before we finished editing. You know, we were like almost done editing. And I was like all shot up. I'm still coming to the editing 
sessions in and out the hospital. I'm, you know, uh, I'm doing very well musically. You know, I'm, I'm traveling state to state. I was writing for a couple of magazines, uh, Ozone Magazine, Hoodstar Magazine. I did some stuff with Boss Status and uh, I did Mandatory Business. Like, I was doing well <laughs> musically, but uh, personally, there was a lot going on. I wanted to come back to the story of you getting shot because I remember I was in school when I, my sister called me and told me that you had been shot. Um, but in terms of the project, you know, like I've known you all my life, but I didn't really know you like I didn't know who knew you. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the types of um, situations you had us in filming were were new to me. They were they were new to me. <laughs> and so I remember like um, and and, you know, uh, rest in power. There are people that were in that film that are no longer with us. The Jacka made an appearance um, yeah. in that film, uh, his, yeah. historic Bay Area rapper rapper from the bay area that was internationally known and beloved um keys killer keys killer and and i actually i really liked him as a rapper i like this flow and nah he's he buzzing man we were supposed to do a mixtape called shut up bitch i'll slap your mama <laughs> and uh we never got a chance to record that <laughs> we never got a chance to record that man i really wanted to do that with my guy because we had such fun interactions both of our name was marquis so i would call him hey marquis he go hey marquis and he's like what you doing marquis oh nothing and you know we and he was in a lot of street stuff too you know what i mean so for us to have that playful interaction and it's really like you know it's hectic we went around heated, like it's not a game, you know. But get paid was like my most fun time, you know. I I was the last one to come on to the label, but when when I came on, it was like a lot of um the camaraderie on the you know, we had people from every side of the city, from Lakeview to the towers to Hunters Point to, you know, I just added an aspect from uh, Filmo, and um, we had people from Oakland. I think Filthy Rich was on the label, Jet Black. Like, we had a real strong squad to, like, cover the Bay Area. We had some people from Richmond, um, you know, and we were all working together and making music. So when I came with my energy, like, let's knock out these projects, let's shoot this movie, let's make this mixtape, let's do, the, you know, like, I had a lot of ideas, and it really just, um, you know, it, 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 it it kept up a good momentum and juice had the um fan base to take us to portland seattle oklahoma denver you know like so it was really you know going really well yeah yeah things were starting to really pick up i credit that experience with me having the ability to like start and and do something like have an idea and finish the idea right with that with that initial project that i did um, that summer school class at SF State. You know, I went to I went to college in Massachusetts. I took a summer school class. That was a film class, which has kind of prompted our collaboration, right? Um, I had never really done a ton of stuff outside of something academic. Like I think I sold candy in high school to to go to like a scholarship program, but it was like school still school focused. I wanted to raise money 
to go to school, you know? And so this was the first time where it was like, um, I had it, it was your music and, and I, and, and I wanted to like put a visual to it with your participation along with everybody else. Right. And so it was like a collaborative experience for me that was creative and it was really challenging in a good way. And I think the first, the, the, you know, the moment where I knew that like I wanted to do stuff on my own was like, it was hard. It was hard working with you. You know, (laughs) it was, and it was like, it was like hard dealing with people like on set, you know, acting up. But when it was over, I missed it. It was like, I think I have one of those work ethics, like one of them, we finna get this done at all costs. Like, you know, yeah, we having fun and all that stuff. But, at the end of the day, we working, you know what I mean? And uh, always wanted to make stuff that had uh, quality to the best of my ability. So when you play my stuff next to somebody else's stuff that, uh, you know, I might not have a budget they have, so I'll do the best I could with what I got. But I always had a, a, a work ethic to where we finna get this done. And, and of course, I was trying to give it like all of the... Um attractive women that were anywhere near the <laughs> the video shoot. Yeah. We had there were these there were these like this was when MySpace was big. Dad, this was so yeah. <laughs> before the Instagram models, there was the MySpace models. And I want to say like anybody that has somewhat of a following was a part of that project. Yeah. I mean it was a lot of people came through. I really, you know, the envious twins came through uh Mm-hmm. The hood stars, mob figures, uh, Juice, Willie Hen, Demo, like a lot of people came through, you know, to make that project a success. You know, just a project. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people came through. Yeah, a lot of people just happened to be around. Let me get in the movie. Come on, everybody who came through got in the movie. You know, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so and so we put that together. That goes out. Um, what is, you know, at some point you step away from rapping, what, what happens there? Like what, what prompts that? Uh, our cousin told me that, um, I was going to have to stop rapping and you know how somebody tell you something and you could tell that you never even thought about it before. He was like, cousin, that's really the only thing that's just keeping you in the game. Like, you know, like you don't be outside no more. You don't be like, you know, he was like. This is after I got shot. And, and, you know, a real friend or somebody really care about you, they ain't going to want to see you in harm's way. They don't care what you talking about. You know what I mean? Like, if somebody really care about you, they don't want to see nothing happen to you. And he like, because you going to these shows and being out and about, like, you too much in the public eye, you too accessible because of rap. Like, that's the only thing keeping you in danger, basically. You know, and a lot of rappers was dying, you know, <laughs> getting shot, getting killed, you know, because they could differentiate between the music and and the, and the streets, you know. And I remember uh, Fast Eddie was telling me, man, you're going to have to choose what you're going to do. You're going to rap or you're going to be in the streets. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not, I'm doing what I'm doing. I, I don't know how to differentiate 
appreciate the two. You know what I mean? Because I'm not, I'm not trying to be in the streets. I'm born and raised here. I'm growing up. I'm dealing with what's coming at me in life. I never thought of myself as a gangster or, uh, you know, any of that. I never was motivated by, oh, you from over there, so I'm going to try to do something. You know, I was dealing with personal issues, and it just happened to be with people from certain places, and it would, it would escalate to a, 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 a thing where it would become a, a, a bigger issue than a personal problem because mm. of the people that was involved, you know. But I was just dealing with life. I mean, you take it as it come. A lot of people upset with me behind decisions that I made when I was in my 20s or in my teens. And, you know, I was just dealing with life. I wasn't a violent person until people were uh, violent towards me or trying to rob me or taking stuff from me and, you know, just like really play you out of pocket. I used to be a nice guy until I seen that that was a weakness in the in outside Let's talk about the night you got shot. What what was happening? It was my birthday party. You coming to my birthday party? Uh, (laughs) You just celebrated (laughs) a birthday. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it it was my 29th birthday. Uh, It was the same day as the Bars Awards, the Barry Rapson Awards. And uh, that's when I was with Get Paid. Juice and Mess had won a lot of awards. They had performed. They was playing the commercial for the movie that we did when I walked in, the whole bay was in there. And I had been working really hard and I really felt like I wanted to celebrate my birthday. I wanted to celebrate my accomplishments. I wanted to celebrate the movie. I was kind of at the pinnacle of uh, everything that I had done, but I was also hot. (laughs) You know, people, you know, a lot of people have been shot. A lot of people have been um, killed. A lot of people had like the streets was at a, it was at a um, real, real level of intensity at that time because the Bars Awards didn't even finish. They turned the Bars Awards, start fighting backstage. There was multiple fights backstage at the Bars Awards. Mm-hmm. And I think somebody got shot at every after party mm-hmm. for the Bars Awards, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I had a birthday party and I was advised by the whole world not to have a birthday party. And I was like, I'm kind of tired of living in a box, avoiding situations to try to stay out of trouble. Like, if it's going to be what it's going to be, it's going to be whatever it's going to be tonight because I'm going to celebrate my life and my accomplishments. Yeah, I remember seeing you in the hospital. And, uh, and yeah, I must, have, I must have come back from my break at school. You know, you, you, you talked about the transition and, 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 and our cousin helping spark it. There was this whole like other phase of your journey that it looks very different than sort of like this picture you're painting now. And it kind of looks like you had like a new lease, you know, I want you to talk about like um, the move to Atlanta and I, and I, and I, and I kind of want to get into some of your travels before we, before we finish. Cause you kind of like, I don't know how much you traveled before this point, but you kind of became hella like into leaving the country you end up moving to atlanta yeah like how does that feel what's going on in your mind like what starts to happen when you when you go uh like i said it was my 29th birthday when i got shot right my birthdays are are really significant i celebrate every birthday i promise you just because 
it, it like all the rest of the year I'm grinding, I'm grinding, I'm grinding, but I stop every year for my birthday and just uh, reflect and appreciate that I made it through another year day by day. But I was sitting at my 30th birthday party. I remember I, I had a small party. I didn't throw a big party this year. I was uh, kind of, it took me like almost a year to recuperate from being shot. Like half, my hand was shattered and I got shot in my side and they had to take uh, bone from my hip to uh, restructure my hand. And I had like five, six surgeries on my hand. Uh, I had to learn how to walk again after they took the bone off my hip. I had like an apparatus with crutches because my hand was broke. I couldn't hold the crutches. So I really was looking banged up for a whole year, a lot of physical therapy and all this stuff. So by the time I came to my 30th birthday, I was just able to do this with my hand, hmm. you know, for the first time. I could have full hmm. range of motion in my hand. It took a year just to do that. But I'm sitting at my 30th birthday party. They bring out the cake. It was at like the Elephant Bar on uh, in South San Francisco or something. And I had a few close friends there, you know, probably 10, 15 people, uh, whoever I was messing with at the time. And they brought out the cake and it said 30. And I was already feeling kind of shell-shocked. And when they brought out the cake, somebody yelled, 30? And then you're 30? <laughs> and I, I was already shell-shocked because so many people I knew didn't make it to see 30. And I realized at that point, I didn't have one plan for after 30. Like, I never, you know, thought about life after 30. You know what I mean? Who lived for 30? Like, I, you know... People have been killed in my car. I done been shot. I done been through indictments and the feds is on me. And, you know, I've been through so much stuff. It's like 30? And then I was just like, I don't know what to do, you know? And then, um, you know, um, I was working. I have been highly uh, insomniatic since, like, 2002. I, my, my friend got killed in my car, like, I didn't sleep much after that, you know, for years. I was just up. That's how I was so productive with music and magazines. I had a full-time job. I graduated from City College. You know, I was doing so much stuff because I was just always up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I was sitting at work one night, and I wrote a, a poem called Chopping It Up With God. And uh, it was really like God was speaking to me, and he said, leave. And I was like, leave what <laughs> he like leave you know i was like where i'm going and he's like atlanta you know and i'm like atlanta like what's in atlanta you know <laughs> like i had been out there before a few times and i really liked it and i would travel there often just to go shopping or you know visit family or uh like i really liked atlanta that was the first place i ever went that i didn't want to go home from like when the trip was up i was like I went the last year they ever had Freaknik was my first time going to Atlanta. And I kind of bumped into Freaknik on accident. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is the spot. And it didn't get turned out. Nobody got shot. And it was popping for blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. Mm. Cracking. Black people just having a good time. I was like, oh, this is where you need to be. You know, I never seen nothing like this before in my life. And I wanted to go to school out there. You know, I used to go on these college tours with uh, 
with the um with a program through city college uh name escapes me right now they're gonna be mad at me but dr augustine and them had a, a program uh african-american retention program i believe it was called or something where uh they would take inner city kids mostly kids with the bow i went to watch but i would travel all the way to city college and they would give us college and high school credit that was in my 12th grade year and they would take us on college tours every year. They took us everywhere from New York to Atlanta to Alabama, New Orleans, Washington. Like, them was like my first traveling buzz that I went on my own without like family supervision and was just out in the city just maneuvering. I was like, oh, this is the life. You know, I moved to Atlanta. Um, I didn't have no job. I just packed up what fit in my car and I just left. And I believe the path that I was on in San Francisco was like a dead end, you know, and I could have stayed because of whatever else I had going on or I could have met that dead end or I could have just left because the only way to stop what was going on in my life was to take myself out of the equation. You get set up, you start to establish yourself there and you, you go back to school. You go, you go, you go back to finish your undergrad. Yeah, yeah. I start, I had my AA. So right. I just, I transferred to a university there. I started off probably like as a middle sophomore or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was working at a facility. You know, I was working in group homes when I was in San Francisco. So I was working at a facility with kids and I was just working nights and I would go to school during the day. But what happened before that was like, I got saved. Like I was sitting in my living room and the Holy Spirit like came into my living room and uh, it was like a light. I had some days off of work and I was just sitting in my house and I was like, I don't even know what I like to do. Like I didn't literally didn't know what to do, you know? So I started reading some books that our uh, aunt gave me and they were spiritual books. And I was just reading the books sitting there. It was like, and then, you know, it was an instant change. I stopped smoking, drinking, like everything. And I just, it had to be a Saturday. Cause when I woke up the next day, I just knew I was going to church. And then I didn't know what church I was going to. I was just driving around and I seen some black people going in the church and I went in and I was like, listening to the, I always heard the Holy Spirit because I grew up in church and I always been connected to God. Even when I was in the streets, I used to like pray every day. Like I used to do the serenity prayer, you know, and I used to always pray. The first thing I would pray when I wake up in the morning is God don't let me have to shoot my body. I was always connected. I was always grounded. I was baptized at a young age on my own recognizance. But um, once I got saved, it was uh, freeing. You know, all that weight was lifted off of me. Um, I was able to make a lot of progress. Like you said, buy a home, go back to school, different stuff. I was like a shepherd coach at a mega church. And, um, I got engaged. It was, you know, life was just going like it should have been going in the first place. I was able to do um, stuff that uh, normal people take for granted. You were also a huge help to me. This was like, you know, around the time when I was when I was really struggling um, with my drinking, and we started conversations and and we would talk for hours. <laughs> And, uh, you know, this is like before I actually stopped drinking, but um, like at, at all these critical junctures in my life, whether it was that 
or uh, breakups that like, you know, were devastating for me. <laughs> you've, you've <laughs> like, you know, um, there, you've been there, you've been there for a lot of the, for a lot of us in the family. And so um, you talk about the Atlanta experience being your first, before you moved there being like the travel thing, when, when you started to leave the country um, and you got your passport, where is the first place you visited? Dubai. Okay. What I want to try and do is like, I want you to try and list all of the countries that you've been to. I ain't that many. I went to Dubai. I went to Japan. I went to China. I went to Cuba. I went to Toronto. I went to Vancouver. Um, I mean, Mexico. Uh, but I think that's pretty much it. Dubai, Abu Dhabi, my first time out the country. And so, what what prompted the interest in travel? Uh, I knew this girl in, in Dubai, and she wanted to see me, and she said she would buy me a ticket to Abu Dhabi. So I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me see what that'd be like. Why not? I've seen, right. uh, I've seen all of America. I think I've been to every state in America, you know, so many cities. Let me, you know, let me get, let me get further with it. See, mm-hmm. see where I can really go. You know, when, when you think about, like, um, healing from the experiences that you've been through. Uh, what 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 are some tools that you picked up along the way that you think have helped deal with, like the 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 post traumatic stress of some of the stuff you've experienced? I mean, just uh, God, you know, being grateful because a lot of people didn't make it through. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people. Been in life in jail. A lot of people done super long stretches that was like right next to me, real close to me. You know, um, a lot of people just didn't make it. So I mean, I, I press forward for everybody that was close to me that didn't make it or you know got derailed by the system or um, just being grateful is one thing, and just being. Um, Grounded in spirituality is another thing. Like I, I exude a lot of daily stuff that um, keeps me centered. You got to be real careful of what you intake into your brain. Like I don't do social media. You know, I've tried it on multiple occasions. It's just uh, it just don't sit well with me. It's just not a positive uh, influence in my life. Like. I just rather not be on social media at all. Um, I try to be as careful as I can with these phones and internets and all that because um, it's like right now a, a bunch of states are suing Facebook for um, selling information, your information, and you know, like they programming everybody. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems harmless. But uh, uh, a symptom of being woke is that you can see everything and you take nothing for what it seems. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Every little thing that you intake into your brain, whether it be by accident or um, carelessness, affects your uh, 
thought process in your in your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the violent stuff you watch on TV, all the you know, it's just crazy. You know, they seep ideas into your mind. They seem harmless, but you know, it becomes normal. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're all being finessed. You know, to be distracted and to to be seeking and to believe that you know we're not enough. Looking and for they validation. If you're not tapped in with technology, you closed out on so much information. You know what I mean? The 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 less you use technology, the more shut out of society you become. You know, I, I started this thing. I, I I was reading this book called um, "The Way of the Superior Man," and and I actually just gave it to our cousin David. I told him to to skim it for a few days because I I want it back. <laughs> and um, so, I said I read some of that. I didn't finish it, but I did read a lot of that book. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, it prompted this like it didn't say this in the book, but it prompted me to do this uh, digital fast. And I tried it for the first time last week, where I just like didn't touch any technology for the entire day. And I also wasn't allowed to read, like no sweets, no distractions, right? Nothing to escape, no sex, like nothing that would like allow me to seek some type of escape. And it was like a really hard day, you know? (laughs) It was a really hard day. And so uh, it's something that I wanna continue to practice over the weekend, like turning off everything, if we make a plan before the day, I'll show up, but I'm not gonna have my phone on me to, I'm running late, you know, that's kind of like how I'm going about doing it. I wanna move into the rapid fire because I wanna let you get to the rest of your evening. Yep. Do you meditate? On occasion. What's one book you would recommend? The Principle of the Path by Andy Stanley. Do you have a motto? Just do it. I jacked it from Nike, but I've been using it all year. Just do it. How do you define success? I know it's a quote. I might butcher this quote, but uh, it's something to the effect of the measure of a man is not by what he's accomplished, but by what he's overcome. So I I, I believe success is uh, more about the obstacles that you overcame to get to where you are more than the things that you accomplished. What is your idea of fun? To relax and most of the time laying on the beach in the cabana with a drink and a bad chicken. You feel me? Listening to the ocean on a not too hot day, not too cold day. That sounds good right now. What's one personal weakness you can forgive in someone ignorance you know because not knowing is just like not knowing a lot of times i could if you don't know you can't be responsible for what you don't know but if you know and you choose otherwise that's hard to forgive but if you don't know last and final question the house is burning all of the loved ones and pets are out what's Three things you grab. Grab my Glock, grab my Air Magazine, and I'm grabbing a coat. (laughs) This is 
<laughs> Monday morning, the final discussions. This is uh, my first cousin, a man I love a lot, Marquise Cook. Thank you for sharing your story, your insights. Um, I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. Thank you again for listening. And thank you for subscribing. Please do so if you haven't already. I'm grateful for your support. Uh, please share the podcast with a friend. Also, help us grow this community of doers. Please take a minute to also uh, rate and review the podcast on Apple. Leave a comment on YouTube. It really helps people hear about and find what we're doing here. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During the Pandemic. You can check the article in the description box if you want to uh, you know, see how I started this one, the equipment we use, some book recommendations that'd be helpful to consider. Check that out when you get a chance. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive impact. Uh, we build strategic partnerships between businesses and government. We recruit diversity talent into high impact roles, and we help companies drive impact in the places where they do business. If you'd like to learn more about that, feel free to email me, info at stevoncook.com. I'd like to thank the people that make our podcast possible, our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, David. Our copy editors, Fernando Sico Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both also. I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. Uh, you are our teachers, garbage collectors, uh, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, fire workers, police officers, EMT workers, bus drivers, and nurses. Uh, you are our employers, the people helping create jobs and keeping our economy growing. You are our gig workers, uh, stocking ourselves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland. Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn. Uh, shout out to all of our listeners also know on the continent and around the world, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to do so because of you until we meet again peace peace and we out